0: Today, we're talking with Cassandra Goodman. She's the founder of the Center for Self-Fidelity and has held roles as a Lean Six Sigma leader, customer and operational experience leader, and global director of employee experience at companies like GE, Origin Energy, and Bupa. Cassie had a lot to share with us about her journey. From realizing the ways in which she was undervaluing herself and the effect that was having on how she showed up as a leader, to the importance of seeking out places where you can be yourself and do good work with good people. I hope you'll find something here to support you on your journey as Cassie shares what she would tell herself from where she is today. Welcome to I'd Tell Myself, where we dive into the individual journeys people have taken to professional success and share some of the lessons that they've learned along the way. I'm your host, Danielle Frankel. I've long believed that there are many ways to learn the important lessons in life, And while some lessons are only gained through personal experience, others can be learned less painfully from those ahead of us on their own journey. I hope you'll find something here to support you as we ask these individuals what they tell themselves from where they now sit. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for joining me today. As always, we're going to start with a few fast facts. So would you tell us your name and what you do and a little bit about yourself?
1: So my name is Cassandra Goodman. I live in Melbourne in Australia. I'm the founder of the Centre for Self-Fidelity, uh, a term I coined, uh, a term that refers to the practice of honouring who we really are at our core. And as part of my work, I do coaching, I do consulting, um, leadership training programs. I have a really broad portfolio of work that keeps evolving.
0: And you've had a really interesting journey. I mean, you know, no spoiler alerts because we're about to dive into it, but you had a really interesting journey to get to where you are, starting with work as a, a Six Sigma Black Belt, which is a pretty rigid and organized sort of way of looking at business, right? So I'm very curious to unpack a little bit about how you got from that end of the business world to the self-fidelity space. Yes. <laughs>
1: Uh, I could never have predicted where I've ended up, that is for sure. So I spent eight years with General Electric, uh, both here in Australia and in Europe. Uh, and in that time, GE was very big on Six Sigma and later what was called Lean Six Sigma, which was an expansion of the toolkit. And Six Sigma and Lean Six Sigma was all about kind of illuminating what we call this invisible transfer function between the inputs and outputs of a process. There's a lot of statistical analysis, a lot of spreadsheets, a lot of data gathering. It was very, everything had to be quantified. And I think I was initially attracted to Six Sigma and Lean Six Sigma because it was a toolkit to continually improve and optimize and make things better. I think at my core, if you distill me right down to my core, I'd say I'm a change activator. I've always been someone who wants to catalyze change to make things better. So I was very attracted to that toolkit. And it was a really great time at GE. You know, I I was approached by one of the business leaders to be what's called his black belt. And that was working in partnership with a uh, you know, someone leading a PL to optimize the core customer touching processes in that business. Then I was asked to become a master black belt, which was training black belts. And then finally I decided I wanted to be a quality leader, which is kind of top of the pops for Six Sigma. Um, and in Australia, there was only a couple of quality leader roles. My boss was one of them and he wasn't going anywhere. So he was like, Cassie, stop bugging me. Like I'm, I'm in this job, look elsewhere. Why don't you look overseas? And so <laughs> I still remember the afternoon many, many decades ago when I searched on the GE intranet for quality leader and I left the country field blank in the the internal job search database and all of these roles came up. I was like, wow. And I saw one in Brussels and I thought, Brussels is in Europe. I think it's close to France. (laughs) I like Paris. (laughs) I'm going to apply for that one. (laughs) And ended up Living in Brussels for over two years, a quality leader across Europe, Middle East and Africa for the GE security business, which was an amazing growth opportunity. But I think at some point, what I started to realize that there was what in Six Sigma you called lurking variables. Lurking variables were inputs that were affecting the output that hadn't been accounted for and couldn't be quantified. (laughs) And of course, they were the human factors um right surprise surprise the human factors and so I think that was the first seed of like "Mm, there's more there's more going on here than can be captured in a spreadsheet um these human behaviors are really impactful and don't seem to be properly accounted for in this particular methodology um I left GE, and then my career took me into custom experience design. So at that time, human centered design was coming onto the scene. I was like, okay, this is the next bright shiny thing. <laughs> um I, <laughs> I've mastered Lean Six Sigma. I have a few question marks. Yes, we 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 saved millions of dollars. We we had to, you know, if I added up all the dollars I'd saved or made on Lean Six Sigma, it's in the many millions of dollars. So it's an effective toolkit, of course. And it wasn't all all. There was more. So then I was really drawn to human-centered design. And I um, started becoming um, really skilled in that toolkit and started leading human-centered design teams focused on customer experience design. And then I had this similar kind of knowing that, wait a minute, to deliver and sustain great customer experiences, we need to first deliver and sustain great employee experiences. So I kind of describe my career as going further and further up the supply chain. Two decades focused on customer experience innovation with Six Sigma human-centered design. And then a realization that no, I want to play in the employee experience space because really to underpin, to underpin sustainable great customer experiences. And so I was lucky to hold a great role at BUPA, which is um, a global healthcare company where I was global director of employee experience that included well-being. Uh, that was a role that was responsible for a workforce of 86,000 people around the world, and I, I learned so much. And how do you create a workplace that really activates human potential at scale in, in such a diverse workforce? And held a few more roles, kind of playing in that intersection of employee experience, customer experience, and how those two things come together to create value. And then ultimately, um, the, the honest truth, Danielle, is that I realized that the people at the top of corporate Australia had lost touch with the truth of who they were. I realized actually it was the inner experiences of leaders and how they thought about themselves, how they were talking to themselves, that impacted employee experience, that impacted customer experience. So the final you know, moving up the supply chain was from customer experience innovation to employee experience innovation to today, really focusing on innovating the inner experiences leaders have at work as I believe the core catalyst for that whole chain of value that can be created or destroyed. And so I left Corporate Australia. I've been running my own business for five years. I've written a couple of books And continue to kind of play my part in helping leaders reconnect to the truth of who they are at our core. We are caring, compassionate, connected, creative, playful beings and yet I've witnessed and personally suffered from so many leaders who've lost connection with these qualities and really right now that's my purpose to help restore faith in these qualities, help to amplify these qualities in business, in government, in all the different organizations I work with um really to help catalyze or create or co-create workplaces that really activate human brilliance at a time when we need it the most that was a long story sorry
0: <laughs> no that's great it's so interesting and it almost sounds like you've had three careers right and I can absolutely see how they sort of um from one to the next and I I see what you mean about sort of going upstream as you moved along in your career right but you had a whole career as a you know a 6 sigma black belt and in the various positions around there and a whole career in the design space and i'm curious about the shift that you made from the design space to the employee space and you know it's sort of it's one of those moments where if you were looking at a bunch of resumes to say okay who should our global head of employee engagement be right I think the first thing they were looking for, I imagine was probably not a design experience Six Sigma person. Um, So how did you make that shift? How did you make the case that they should make you that person?
1: Yeah, good question. So I remember the day at Bupa when I saw that role posted. So it was this beautiful, magical moment in time that happens sometimes in corporates where the right brains and thinking just came together. And so at that time, there was a global CEO by the name of Stuart Fletcher, Stuart had a vision that workplaces needed to become a significant source of well-being for the world's population, which was, you know, a radical idea because for so many of us workplaces, perhaps a source of suffering, maybe play some sort of neutral role, but it's, I think it's a radical idea that actually workplaces become a really significant source of well-being. So he had that idea and then the chief people officer at the time had this vision that Bupa could become the best place to work on planet Earth. Now, Boop is an organisation with a purpose of longer, healthier, happier lives. And it was my deep, deep experience over six years there that for that purpose to be real in the world, it had to first be activated for the 86,000 people who work there. Otherwise, my sense is, is a purpose becomes a very hollow kind of shell of a promise. Like that's the best way I could describe it. A fragile, hollow shell of a thing rather than a solid, true Thing that can be activated, Uh, and so the role was really about the accountability. A key accountability was to move the dial on a key metric. We we ended up creating the key metric being employee saying, "I am happier and healthier because I work at Boopa." So that was my dream job. Really, at that point, reading that job description was like full body goosebumps. Like this is it. This is where I've been heading all of these decades. And the interview process was pretty grueling. You know, I remember being in here in Melbourne in the Booper boardroom at 6am dancing to that song Happy, is it Will Farrell? Like dancing around the boardroom with that happy, trying to wake myself up for a 6am panel interview with all of these executives in London, some of whom, you know, were on the board of the World Health Organisation, like these super impressive people. And I don't know what happened. You know, i I... I really bought my A game. I really thought deeply. I would really thought about why actually to solve that problem, traditional HR thinking was not necessarily what was going to get us there, that we needed fresh thinking. We needed human-centred design skills. And maybe it was just my pure passion and energy, but... Um, it was a long and grueling interview process and and somewhere between the last interview and the phone call, I'd convinced myself that I definitely wasn't going to get the role. And so when the chief of people officer finally called me late one night and I went into my spiel, like, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity. You know, it's been such a good learning curve. She's like, Cassie, stop talking. You've got the job. <laughs> I was like, what? And and she said, I'll oh, never forget, she said, Cassie, you are the unicorn I was searching for which is one of the most special things anyone I think has ever said to me. And it felt so wonderful to for that chief people officer to recognise that we needed something different. And, you know, it was a tough gig. I was on the global HR leadership team with no HR experience. It wasn't an easy ride. I'm proud of what we did. We did make a difference. We did move the dial on some of those key metrics. And then you know the the tides changed and the ceo was asked to leave the chief people officer retired and and i at that point after having had a pretty grueling time traveling back and forth to london with some, a baby and a toddler said um how about we make my role redundant and i'll go on my way and pass the baton on and that's what
0: i did wow yeah i love that behind the scenes view of you know you're just dancing around in the conference room i I think that's fantastic. And it's so its so often one of the things that I have always wondered about people, you know, like I know what I'm doing to help psych myself up for big, important things, right? But these people who walk into meetings with their, you know, full professional face on, you're like, did they even have to, like, were they even nervous for this conversation? Did they have to do any kind of prep or did they just roll out of bed ready for this, right?
1: <laughs> or were they dancing barefoot in the boardroom to happy? <laughs> <Damn> right, <me.
0: laughs> I think I, from now on when I get nervous about things or I have those questions, that's just what I'm going to assume people had to do before the conversation. It yeah. works. I, yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. You know, we've talked a lot about in recent years about, you know, taking the power pose. Like you can just take yourself to the bathroom for, you know, five minutes and do your thing, power pose, and you'll feel better, ready to approach the moment. But I'm I'm here for a good dance party, especially now that people, so many people work remote. Great.
1: Yeah, I mean, creating, shifting our state um and shifting our energy and being aware of the energy we bring I mean that's now that I I do the work I do in coaching and training it's become even more apparent that the the state we bring is really
0: what sets us apart Mm. yeah it's terrific um gosh okay so there's we covered a lot of ground there so I'm going to circle back to um there's a couple of more tactical questions about things that you learned along the way. You know, I so I operate from the principle that we manage work and we lead people. And it's my experience that most organizations don't teach people when they make the shift into management how to do that, either of those things, really. Um, it's a It's a big gap. We want people to learn on the ground. Sometimes we say, hey, here's a more senior person that you can ask questions of, but there are very few programs that actually say, hey, you're a new manager, welcome, here are some skills that we have decades of research that we know you'll need, let us teach them to you so that you don't have to make these mistakes and harm other people in the process. Totally my soapbox bias, but um, it leads me to the next set of questions for you, which is I'm curious in your career progression, how you learned to manage and lead others. And um, you know, did you get trained? Did you have to make observations? Did you make horrific mistakes that you might be open to sharing with us and learn from? <laughs> what was that like for you?
1: Yes, all of the all of the above. I think I was fortunate, particularly in the eight years at GE, you know, GE invests heavily in leadership development. So I, I think I was really spoilt. Um, and so every step of the way, that new manager development program, advanced leadership development program, you know, and, and on and on and on it went. So I felt like I had firm footing in terms of some of the basics of, you know, how to have difficult conversations, how to manage performance conversations, um, situational leadership, some of those foundations. Um, and I would say I learned the hard way about. The importance of leading oneself in order to lead others and you know i talk about this in my second book but what i now understand about the human mind is that we're not singular in our psychology we all have many parts we have a core self and we have many parts and many branches of psychology recognize the multiplicity of the human mind sometimes they might be called um, sub-personalities or ego states or schemas In the modality I'm now trained in, we call them PART. And for the vast majority of my career, I have a part of me called Little Miss Achiever and she was in the driver's seat. So Little Miss Achiever is a part of me who attached her self-worth at a very young age to being a high-achieving, low-maintenance machine. Those two things were what was required for her to feel like she was enough and so when I look back on how I was showing up as a leader when Little Miss Achiever was in the driving seat, is very much anti-leadership behaviours. It was really all about me. It was all about gold stars. It was the next promotion, project delivery on time to get more gold stars, to get more recognition, to climb the ranks as fast as possible. And I got stuff done. You know, I think that's why I was so... I performed so well at GE, you know, at the time, GE was very much about delivery, pace, edge. You know, I remember winning the President's Award for Solve and every year I was up on the stage getting some other fancy award just because I was getting so much done. Now, was I getting work done in a way that was kind and inclusive? Question mark. Big question mark. And I remember at the time I read that book, Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office, and I'm I'm kind of ashamed to admit I drank. On, I believe that book and I now see that that book you know I don't want to be critical but it it wasn't actually the most helpful advice for me and I, now I will share
0: that I, I also had that book recommended to me early in my career so it, it lives on in my collection of things that in some way shape or form appeared in my the book collection of my career uh, uh, yeah yeah and you know I I think what I
1: took out of that book was the way to succeed is to basically be a man impersonating woman. <laughs> don't wear hair down. Whatever you do, don't put lipstick on. Don't wear dangly earrings. Um, be quite masculine. That was my takeaway from the book, and maybe I read between the lines on that. But that was my my takeaways. Don't be nice. And I had feedback from leaders who said, you know, Cassie. The problem with you is that you care too much. If you ever want to make it to a senior executive role, you've got to learn how to care less. And I think that's really rubbish advice now, but but I really believe there's a lot of people out there in the corporate world who believe that, that to care is a liability, a, to care is a weakness. So it's a long answer to your question, but I, I had to learn that... I had to learn to decouple my sense of self-worth from being a high-achieving, low-maintenance machine, and that's taken me years of work. I I first realized that that was the work I had to do when I met a woman who was running the emergency ward at a big public hospital here in Melbourne. And this woman, with tears rolling down her face, confessed to a group of us at a women's leadership retreat that she felt like she had no value in the world. And I remember thinking, oh, crap, if yeah. you are saving lives every day and you feel like you have no value in the world, there's no promotion, no bonus, no president's award that's going to get me where I'm so desperate to get to, which is basically feeling like I was enough, that I had some sort of intrinsic value because of who I was, not because of what I did. And so that was a turning point. I, you know I, I, at that time, I had no idea how to cultivate a sense of enoughness that came from who I am, not from what I do, but I could see that the road or the path I was on, which was to try to cultivate a sense of enoughness from achievements, was a path to burnout and continued suffering. So, yeah, I spent many years really understanding the different parts of me, including my little misachiever part. And I now think of her actually as a daughter. I know that might sound a bit odd for anyone who's not worked with internal family systems model, which is the modality. But I've got two sons and I would say, you know, to certain selected people, including you and your podcast listeners, that um, I also have many little girls inside of me that, and it's my job to lead them, to take care of them in order for me to really embody my most positively powerful qualities of connectedness of compassion of curiosity of playfulness and so you know i have many practices self leadership practices that underpin my uh my work today that i commit to regularly in order to show up with an open heart and to remember that it's more about it's there's so much more than collecting gold stars like I pin all these gold stars on Little Miss Achiever every day on the way on the way home I'm like I see you sweetheart you worked hard today here's a gold star for this here's a gold star for that you're a rock star I know you worked hard I know that was hard and I'll have this little chat with her but and that but that'll be that'll be the gold star thing rather than before those practices I would be hijacked by Little Miss Achiever and be yearning for this recognition and achievement and that was driving uh, anti leadership behaviors in me
0: that's amazing so it sounds like you know where we started a few minutes ago around the the core belief that it comes from that what is necessary for these work environments to be positive and meaningful places that people go to on a regular basis is that the people in leadership positions first do their own work around you know why are they here and what are they up to and and seeing themselves in a healthy way And coming further upstream, even another step, if you're the coach that helps with that, right, that actually had to start with you having compassion for the pieces of yourself that you could find.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think in most workplaces, the biggest hazards to mental health and safety are the leaders. You know, there are so many workplaces where the leaders are literally walking safety hazards because of their sharp edges because of these parts of themselves that are so driven to be successful to have status to be top dog whatever it is that there's a huge human cost to that striving that unhealthy striving improving and perfecting and pleasing and competing all the stuff right that's what hurts people you know that old saying hurt people hurt people right and what I'm trying to do in my work and particularly in my second book is to illuminate the hurt, the the injuries we carry, the the injuries parts of ourselves carry from the past and how those burdens or injuries we carry, those, those burdens of not enoughness, those burdens of belief that we need to be perfect to be enough. We need to be top dog to be enough. We, we, we need to be, uh, we can't show signs of weakness Uh, We can't not know. We have to look around every corner. We must be in control. We need to have all the answers. Like these beliefs and patterns of thinking are evidence of the burdens that younger layers of self often acquire and carry. And it's these, let's call it the echoes of these past injuries that I believe are often the root cause of psychological injuries that are inflicted in workplaces. At the hands of latest.
0: Hey, if you're enjoying the show, please make sure to subscribe and join our community at ITellMyself.com for updates and info. That's ITellMyself.com. Okay, back to the show. Wow, I mean, there's so much in there, but it it it's, it resonates a lot with my experience, both as a consultant and as a you know a coach, and it's. It's not funny, but, you know, the the old saying, people don't leave bad jobs, they leave bad managers, right? Mm-hmm. It's the same. Yeah. It, it's a highly simplified version of what you're pointing to, right? People leave because this, their experiences are traumatic, right, or painful in ways that they, they don't need to be at the hands of somebody who could do better, may not know better, has their own stuff to work through before they should be in a position where they're responsible for other people.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's so much to unpack there, but I I think that throughout my 30-year career, the thought that kept coming up in my thinking was, oh, my gosh, there is so much unnecessary human suffering that happens every day in workplaces around the world. And this unnecessary human suffering is often a result of leaders who've lost connection to who they really are. They've lost connection to their compassion their curiosity, their patience, their forgiveness, their self-compassion. They're just people have just being hijacked by these parts of themselves that are so determined to be successful and air quote successful, successful make, meaning more money, more status. Yeah. And so the, the inner work of leadership is where I love to play now. And the more leaders that I've had the privilege of working with the more i realize that these parts of us that 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 drive us to shop up in ways that we're not proud of that we don't like that you know they're just there beneath the surface and it doesn't actually take years and years of talking therapy to create shifts in our inner world you know that's why i particularly love the the modality of internal family systems with evidence-based It's been practiced for 40 years in therapeutic settings, but I'm really part of a cohort of um, IFS practitioners that are trying to bring this modality into the realm of authentic leadership because I think it's a missing piece. I I don't think most leaders understand that they have a core and many parts and that when they show up in ways that they don't like, you you know, if people start to have the realization well, actually it's not enough to love what I do unless I also love who I'm being and ask the question why am I showing up in ways that I don't even like let alone love then that's an invitation I think to look beneath the surface at the different parts of ourselves and to understand how these parts of ourselves might be getting us off course or pulling us away from the qualities of true leadership. And that's the, that's the thing, right? When we think about the most powerful qualities of true leadership, and we think about the leaders who've had the biggest impact in their lives, we think about leaders who are in, embodying their compassion, their courage, their creativity, their playfulness. You know, this is these are the qualities of true leadership. And these are the qualities that are innate in all of us at our core, if we can learn how to get out of our own way
0: always always comes back to that doesn't it I'm wondering if we could look a little bit at your journey and see sort of on the flip side of it right so you, you worked through and saw and were part of enough workplaces that were challenging and painful for people and you you know sounds like you've learned from from your own process there as well as from watching others um, One of the other things that I found really interesting in some of these conversations is that people can often point to a moment in their career where they were shown a really unexpected kindness something that they didn't feel that they deserved, maybe they made a mistake and, and somebody was more forgiving or they were offered an opportunity that they didn't think they'd ever receive, um, but that something that fundamentally stuck with them, changed them, um, really made a meaningful difference. Is there anything mm-hmm. in your career that you can point to that, that had that kind of effect?
1: Yeah, I think one of the benefits of writing two books is you comb through your story. So as you were talking then, Danielle, there were actually four moments that came to mind. So the first moment was... my first job so I did quite well in my final um, high school exams and was offered a scholarship to do a manufacturing management degree I never thought I'd do a manufacturing management degree but they offered me this scholarship it was you know paying for my university education and covering the basic subjects of business so I ended up doing that degree and got a great role as a production assistant in a lining manufacturing facility straight out of uni and I remember I was in that role probably 18 months and the the manufacturing manager was a lovely man called Rod Dixon. And I remember on Rod's last day before he retired, he called me into his office, which was like this glass box in the middle of the factory. And I walked in feeling a bit nervous, like what was Rod going to say to me is his final little meeting? And I fully expected Rod to say to me, now Cassie, if you work hard one day, you'll be running this joint. But actually what he said to me is, don't let this place hold you back. And I'll never forget that, the kindness and the unexpectedness of that comment. Because I'd really, yeah. I'd only been there 18 months. You know, I was fresh out of uni. And in that moment, I just felt Rod saw my potential. It was a really special moment. I get goosebumps now. I mean, that was 30 years ago. He would have said that to me. Uh, maybe between 25 and 30 years ago and I still remember that moment because it was so unexpected and so kind so that's one what a gift it was such a gift right such a gift that I've thought about that so many times in my career I think um the next moment that comes to mind would be a an older colleague I worked with at Bupa called Jeff um and at this time I'd been asked to lead the the transformation project for the organization it was a big important high pressure high stakes job um and I came out of a meeting and I remember Jeff said to me hey Cassie do you have a moment when I have a chat to you when we stepped into a private meeting space and he sat me down he said you know Cassie you don't have to keep trying to prove yourself you've already made it um and that was another really kind comment I at the time, the honest truth is there was that Mr. Cheever part of me that thought, you know, what the heck are you talking about, Jeff? I'm just getting warmed up here, buddy. Like, what do you mean I've made it? <laughs> Get out of my way. I'm just warming up here was the actual inner dialogue. But I look back and I know now what Jeff was trying to say is that you're enough. You're enough. You don't stop. have to prove anything. You are enough. And so that was also a beautiful gift. Um, I think there was another moment, there's two more, one one when actually I was living overseas um, in Europe and I was this high-flying corporate executive by day but the truth of my personal life I was actually living with domestic violence. It was a really difficult time, the violence was escalating and I was really afraid because I was on the other side of the world. Um, I had this high-powered job and at home I wasn't safe. And I remember finally confiding to a colleague who ended up becoming a really good friend. And I remember Andrea um, saying to me, Cassie, you are a diamond. That's a moment I'll never forget because just those few words, you are a diamond, gave me the courage to leave that relationship and find safety and then finally I think the other comment that comes to mind is that time at Booper at the end there where I was in that global role I was going back and forth to London I was getting tired I was making a difference but it's coming at a cost and I was thinking about whether I angle for this redundancy or not and a beautiful colleague who was a peer on the global exec team Naomi said to me Cassie you've outgrown Booper." And that was also a kind comment that, again, gave me the courage to spread my wings and go on. So there are four moments that I'll treasure. And, you know, these are moments of human connection, right, when we put down the masks and we're just there, we just see each other and we speak the truth, um, we open our hearts to each other. Um, yeah, they are the
0: moments that that will stay with me for a long time. Yeah, that's beautiful. And it's amazing because the, you know, in particular, the professional ones are, were unsolicited, right? Not that the personal one wasn't that, but you were clearly in an mm-hmm. open private dialogue with somebody there where you were having a more intimate conversation, mm-hmm. right? But the, the professional ones, somebody saw something and made the personal effort, right? To have a vulnerable and intimate moment with you where they gave you that, whatever that gift was. And I think so often- even when we see things about people we don't we don't say the thing that we see to say and in part i think it sometimes it feels like it's because it's an effort but i also think that in part it is because it makes us vulnerable to offer the gift and so often people don't even offer the gift when they see the opportunity to do it so it's it's amazing that mm-hmm. so many people have offered you those gifts it's lovely
1: yeah i'm very very fortunate And at the moment, I'm just about to become accredited in the thinking environment, which is a work of Nancy Klein. And Nancy, what, what she's discovered, what needs to be there for us to think well is appreciation. And in her research, she says that actually most workplaces, we receive 10 times the amount of criticism than we do appreciation. And in her view, that needs to be flipped, that we need to experience 10 times the amount of appreciation we do criticism in order for us to really activate our brilliance, to do our best thinking, for our brains to be in a towards state that's open and creative rather than an away-from state where we're closed and guarded. Um, so I do really believe this power of seeing what is good and naming it in other people, we can't underestimate the the power that has not just at an individual level but I think at a collective level in terms of our ability to think think afresh and navigate the really complex wicked problems that we're facing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it would make a huge difference. I also was given a really interesting piece of advice early in my career. I had a client that I worked with who it was a te- it was a very tense project for everybody. The timelines were delayed and there were difficulties all around and we sort of reached the end of the project and um we had done good work but we weren't on the friendliest terms, right as individuals. Before the project was over, you know, he was more experienced in his career and, and we sat down and we had a conversation and he offered me some really candid feedback about what worked and what didn't work. And I was talking to my my mentor and my boss at that point. And she said, you know, that's a gift, right? When somebody gives you real candid feedback, right? It's not a criticism. It's not a, you should have done this better, right? There was no value for him in sharing with me what would have made a difference moving forward because we were done working together. Um, but he, it was a really lovely conversation. We talked about what worked, we talked about what didn't work and, um, even the way in which that information is offered, right. The tone makes such a difference in opening up possibility and being, working with people that you're committed to, to creating change with, as opposed to it just being a way to shut down, you know, criticism is just a way to shut things down.
1: Right. And to shut us down, you know, when we're afraid, we we do shut down. Yeah, and I've had criticism given to me in, in a way that, that I did shut down, that I was very upset. You know, I talk about this in my first book that I remember once I had a performance review conversation with a boss and her opening line in the performance review was, Cassie, if this was 1980, I would be telling you to put on shoulder pads and red, lip, red lipstick. You are so small; you lack any sort of gravitas, oh. and that really hurt. You know, I cried all the way home from that performance review, and I—the rest of the conversation is a blur, actually. And there was a there was a diamond inside that pretty crap wrapping. Layers and layers of crappy wrapping. <laughs> it took me a while to. Unwrap all the <laughs> to get to the diamond. I imagine. Right. And she she was right. I was small in that. I I wasn't, I was m- more fearful of making a mistake than I that I felt empowered. I was playing it safe. There were, her feedback was true. I hadn't stepped into my power in that role. But the way she delivered it was really harsh and really hurt. So, yeah, I I think it's also in the delivery, as you say.
0: Yeah. Wow. So you've had this amazing journey um, and you've shared some really interesting and important lessons, I think. I always ask before we wrap up these conversations, you know, if you could go back and tell yourself anything from where you are now, having gone through each of these sort of mini careers that all tie together, um, what would you tell yourself? What advice would you give?
1: Firstly, I'd want to tell my younger former self that you are enough you're enough because of who you are the unique energy that you bring to your work and to the world that's enough that you don't have to do or have you know accolades and gold stars that you're enough I think that's the first thing and I I think the other thing I would say is you know the older you get the more you're going to realize that at the end of the day, it's about doing good work with good people. And the more you can just focus on that, on doing good work that matters with good people around you, people you know, like, and trust, and that maybe not even like, but know and trust, ideally like, would be the other bit of advice. And, And I think the third bit of advice would be what I wrote in my university graduation book was love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life. And I will gently probably suggest that that's not enough. Loving what you do is not enough unless you also love who you're being while you do it. So seek out workplaces where you can be yourself because that's when you're going to be at your best.
0: They're probably the three bits of advice I would give. That's great. And I, yes, I can agree more. Seek out workplaces where you can be yourself. That's fantastic um thank you you mentioned that you have some books would you yes. care to tell us a little bit about them and we'll put the links in the the show notes
1: yeah thanks Danielle so my first book self-fidelity uh was written really as tr- try to codify and share this practice of restoring faith in who we are at our call. so that's a slightly longer book that really goes into the different components of my understanding of this practice of self-fidelity, which is waking up to the dialogue in our heads, waking up to the different parts of ourselves, letting be the qualities of our true nature, letting go of what holds us back and letting in what we need to nourish us. That's the four elements of self-fidelity. And my second book, Being True is a guide for leaders who want to explore the inner world more deeply. It's really a guide of five principles and five practices to better understand who we are at our core and start to lead all the different parts of ourselves. Being True is available on Audible and other audiobook platforms. and Both of them should be available on Amazon,
0: but I'll send you a link that they can also be ordered directly from me. Great. Yeah, I know when we start to get into all of the different international versions of Amazon, it's uh... It's tricky. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bit wild out there. So yes, we'll put the links in the show notes for anybody who's interested in learning more along with your website, yes? Thank you, yes. And I'm doing
1: a podcast called True Power, which is having conversations with leaders about um, telling stories about times when we weren't being true to ourselves. So that's also an emerging uh, creative outlet for me. And I'm really loving uh, recording these conversations and sharing them. So I'll I'll include a link to that as well. Great, is that on
0: uh, Apple? Or it and where Spotify, yeah, Spotify,
1: okay. Apple and Spotify, yeah, true power, yeah,
0: true power, awesome. Well, great, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing part of your story. And uh, I look forward to watching as the next pieces of it unfold for you. Thank you so much, Danielle. I really enjoyed our conversation. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the show and found something to support you wherever you are on your own journey don't forget to subscribe where you listen to your podcasts and head over to itelmyself.com to sign up for updates. Until next time, take care.